George Santos arrested on federal charges on the same day Trump was found liable for sexual abuse and defamation. We'll discuss the political and legal implications. And at midnight, Title 42, a controversial pandemic era immigration measure, will come to an end. Will this lead to a massive influx of migrants? Is there any hope for sensible solutions to our broken immigration system? Then, some are saying a new technology could spell the end of teaching as we know it. Are they right? We'll dive in and see for ourselves. And finally, housing prices are dropping in more places in America than at any time in recent memory. But this drop is confined to a few key geographies. We'll take stock of the likely winners and losers of this new housing market and help you make sense of it all. Welcome to Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, we want to start hitting some more breaking news on the front ends of these shows. Even though people don't come here for breaking news here at Lost Debate, we we generally like to deep dive in issues that aren't being covered by the media. But so much happened this week, you know, with Santos being indicted, many charges here in federal court just down the street from me here in Brooklyn. And then Trump found liable uh, in a civil case also here in New York. I mean, it's just hard to keep track of it all. It is. But I think we should rewind very quickly in George Santos' world to his greatest hits of the most atrocious lies, just to remind everyone really quickly of who this guy is. Um, He lied about being everything from an NYU student to a Wall Street executive to the producer of the Spider-Man show on Broadway, which was like very short lived and ended up closing down because the actors kept getting injured. So it's a strange one to lay claim to. Volleyball (laughs) star, um, spaying stray cats, and then some Pretty serious stuff, too, like that his family fled from the Holocaust and then he had the iconic line that he's Jewish um, or that he had employees that died in the Pulse nightclub shooting or that his mom was at 9-11, like bizarre stuff. And so this guy is now um, being charged with uh, 13 federal charges, including wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds and lying to the House. So, Ravi, what do you make of that? Well, it's... even though he has been unconventional in the amount of lies and how brazen he's been, these charges are actually fairly conventional public corruption charges against a politician. So essentially what they've got a lot on him. And so the headline here is don't commit a crime while you commit a crime. And what I mean by this is, you know, any criminal defense attorney will tell you that, look, once you know you're caught, then stop committing more crimes because they've already got you and they're really paying attention to what you're doing. And this guy is lying to federal investigators. He's committing wire fraud, et cetera. And the core crime here is one that's as as old as politics in America, which is he set up a political action committee and was raising money into it, but it wasn't actually a political action committee. It was just basically a slush fund for him. And that's the big crime that all other crimes, it seems, generally emanate from in this indictment. My big question though, Ricky, is why is this guy still in the house? Like how, like why aren't they expelling him at this point? It's very clear he committed these crimes. Well, the New Jersey, sorry, New York Republicans are more gung-ho in getting him out, but I I suppose that his seat is valuable. Razor thin um, majority. In the scheme of things, yeah. 222 to 213 here is what the majority is here. So a couple seats here or there and McCarthy could lose his majority. And obviously Santos has been a fairly loyal McCarthyite. And so, you know, McCarthy doesn't even have a full grasp as we've covered before on his own majority right now at a time where he's trying to, you know, 
push uh, the Republican House agenda in the debt ceiling negotiation. So losing one member actually could be pretty costly here. Hmm. And should we turn to the other crazy piece of breaking news, um, which was that Trump was uh, convicted by nine jurors in three hours in a unanimous vote of sexually abusing the woman who was suing him um, here in New York. She also accused him of raping her in a department store in the 1990s, but they did not find him guilty of rape. Um, and he is paying out $5 million in damages. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there's not much to say here other than the attention is going to be on a law that was passed in New York that allowed them to even bring these charges. Because these, you know, this incident happened a long time ago and the statute of limitations mm-hmm. had long since told. And they didn't, the law didn't reopen uh, Trump for liability criminally, but it did reopen him for liability civilly. And I think you could believe two things at the same time. One is Trump might have and likely did this. Like, I have no reason to believe he didn't. And he talks about this kind of stuff. You know, the Access Hollywood tape is a famous example of it. He has many accusers. I believe everybody's entitled to due process, though. So that's just my personal opinion. So I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if he did it. But reopening a law and having people lobby for that reopening of the law using Trump as an example is what, what happened here in New York when he's, you know, your big political foe. This This once again falls in line with, I think, some real egregious process errors that Democrats have been committing in their thirst for blood against Trump. And so although like if I was on that jury, based on what I've seen, I'd probably vote to find him liable. The whole process of reopening this law and using Trump as an example, which is what they did when they reopened it, that doesn't That doesn't make me feel good about what we're doing here in New York. You can have independent reasons Mm -hmm. for reopening sexual assault cases, but I don't think we should be using Trump as the example when we're reopening those cases, given all the political points that you can win for going after Trump. Well, one final thought on this is that the New York Post had a pretty good front page headline the other day, which was grab them by the wallet. Let's talk about this Title 42. At midnight tonight, this pandemic era, change to the immigration system, massive change that we've covered many times in the show, we'll put in the show notes. It comes to an end tonight. Big jump in the crowd at the border just days before Title 42 expires. Now Joe Biden is preparing to remove the last remnants of my Title 42 policy wiping out the few remaining shreds of our southern border. So, but it remains to be seen. It's going to be chaotic for a while. It's always been busy here, uh, but what is unusual is all the people that are just coming in to turn themselves in. It's something that we're not, you know, used to. It's not, didn't ever used to happen. We was hoping that everything going to be way easier to don't struggle this much. Well, Ricky, we're joined by one of our colleagues today, Monica Aspitia, who is the producer of Pulso Pendulo, our Spanish language podcast. And she's been doing a ton of work figuring out what's happening at the border and with Title 42 generally. Monica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, Monica, tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing and who you've been talking to. Yeah. So actually, we also covered the end of Title 42 for on PYP this week, Pulso Pendulo. So I actually interviewed a reporter, an immigration reporter who lives in El Paso. His name is Uriel Garcia. He works for the Texas Tribune. And he talked to us a little bit about what this means and what's likely to happen from now on. Uriel, thank you so much for your time. 
As we know, this week, uh, Title 42, which is an immigration policy that was implemented during the pandemic, is coming to an end. Can you please explain what Title 42 is and why was it implemented in the first place? Title 42 is a public health emergency that was used to prevent the spread of certain diseases coming into the country. This has been the Trump administration invoked it for the first time since its creation in 1944. And it's been in place since March 2020. And the way it's being used now is it's being used as an immigration policy rather than a health order policy. So what that means is that people who are trying to enter the U.S. and maybe seeking asylum are being turned away at the borders and expelled to Mexico or in some cases expelled back to their home countries. And so what's happening is that if someone who's crossing either through a port of entry or illegally through through land is that immigration agents will arrest them and immediately expel them back to Mexico. And so when the Trump administration created this, it was what the uh, what they said was to prevent the spread of the coronavirus along the border. And uh, so why? I mean, it's been three years, right, since the pandemic started. Why is it being lifted now? We know that there's been back and forth in the courts about this, and uh, it's finally coming to an end. So why is it ending? The Biden administration decided to lift the national emergency health order that had declared the pandemic. And that national health order policy is lifting on May 11th. Now, why that's important and why it relates to Title 42 is that because of that that health uh, emergency health order, that's what allowed the federal government to invoke Title 42. And so because the national health order is lifting on, on May 11th, Title 42 automatically also lifts. So uh, the legal fights were never re- really settled. And what measures is the Biden administration taking now that Title 42 is coming to an end? The country is going back to its uh, to the historically used immigration laws. And that's under Title VIII. And basically what that ha- what happens is that if someone is crossing the border illegally or tries to enter through a port of entry without papers, is that uh, that person uh, is going to be arrested, possibly face charges of trying to enter the country illegally. And during that process, that person may ask for an as- to open an asylum case. So uh, it, it says two cases at the same time. Basically, it's a deportation case, while also the migrant has the right to ask for asylum during that process. If they qualify for asylum, then deportation uh, case starts to fade out, and the asylum case, if it's strong enough, they may win asylum. Keep in mind that an asylum case, on average, lasts up to five years before a decision is made. And apart from that, is the Biden administration is taking different measures that have sort of received mixed reactions. One of them is that he's sending uh, 1,500 troops to the border to help Border Patrol agents help process and and process migrants crossing the border illegally. Um, He's done a couple other things that the Biden administration says should help reduce the number of people trying to cross illegally. Two things are, or three things I should say. One of them is the CBP-1 app. They're increasing the number of appointments that 
migrants can get through the app to present themselves at a port of entry. Mm -hmm. This started back in January, and as as of May 10th, they're going to increase the number of appointments from, I believe, 740 to 1,000 a day. That app is for anyone who is trying to enter the country. The second, second program that they're doing is that they're also opening up centers and as of right now in Colombia and Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And any migrant who is trying to enter or trying to seek asylum can go to one of these centers and ask for asylum there. And and it's three participating countries. It's the U.S., Canada, and Spain. So anyone seeking asylum uh, in the region can seek asylum, not just in the U.S., but they can also choose to go to Canada or Spain. And the third program is that the Biden administration is also creating a reunification program for people of certain nationalities. I believe El Salvador and Venezuela are are some of the some of the countries that people can qualify. And what that means is that basically if someone from El Salvador has a family member already established in the U.S., that person from El Salvador can apply to say, hey, I want to reunite with my husband or my mother who's already in the U.S. They'll go through a background check and see if they can, the federal government will decide if they qualify to, to come into the country. So now that 42 is finally lifting, administrative processes for people seeking asylum is going to be much longer and return to pre-pandemic levels, including the backlog that already has kind of piled up. Um, We'll expect to see far more migrants in holding facilities already. People are around processing centers waiting for this to lift so that they can get straight into the door as soon as possible. Um, obviously, if those holding capacities are um, or holding facilities are maxed out in terms of capacity, we can expect inhumane conditions um, and also a lack of legal counsel for people who are searching for asylum. But I think, you know, regardless of your opinion on on the border and and how it should be regulated at this point in time, having a pandemic era policy in place just plugging the hole is certainly not an adequate long-term fix. Well, that's one of two ironies of this whole thing that we've pointed out before. One is what you said, which is this is supposed to be about the pandemic. The pandemic's over. It's, you know, it's ironic that the people who tend to be for extending Title Title 42 are generally speaking very skeptical of using emergency measures related to the pandemic in other contexts. The other irony here, though, is that when you look at the data here, the recidivism rates, so the people who are crossing the borders and then continually trying to cross the borders under Title 42 have actually gone up. And part of that reason, Monica, correct me if I'm wrong, is that basically under the the old system, Title 8, which is now going to be the new system tomorrow, um, you can get arrested for crossing the border. Whereas under Title 42, they just basically send you back. So you could just keep trying and trying and trying. Is that right? Right, Ravi. So not only you can get arrested, you get banned from entering the U.S. for the next five years. So a lot of immigration experts say that this Title 42, what it has actually done done is that it has created a revolving door where migrants just wait in Mexico and then every few weeks they try to come to the border and if they're turned back, they just try again and again and again. So this is not like these migrants are going back to their home countries. So I think it's interesting and it's also important to talk about what the migrants themselves say. And 
They don't really, in many cases, they know that there is a policy change happening in the U.S., but they don't know exactly what that means. And there's not a lot of clarity when it comes to if it is going to be easier or harder to come to the U.S. after the Title 42 is lifted. Some of the some of them think that is going to be easier be- precisely because of what Ricky was explaining, where while others think that they just need to rush now, basically today, and try to come in however possible today because they know that they might face uh, tougher restrictions um, coming tomorrow. Yeah, and what's obviously true here is there's so much happening here all at the same time that it's hard to untangle the reasons for the massive increase in people trying to cross the border over the past few years. But some of them are obvious, right? Mm -hmm. One of them is the, you know, once the pandemic was over, people are tend to be more free to move. I think the second is the incredibly low unemployment in the United States means there's a lot of job opportunities here. And then the third, most controversially, is the perception or the reality of the Biden administration policies. And this is where the debate has been. We've talked about it a lot, which is, is Biden actually more permissive? Is it just that he's perceived to be more permissive? I think it's unquestionably true that he's going to be more permissive than Trump. I think everybody has to stipulate that. The question is how permissive he is. And he's trying to, you know, thread this needle by adding more troops to the border, increasing the detention capacity at the border, improving the app, improving out-of-country capacity. So he's trying to create these processing centers outside of the country. He's doing all of these things at once. He's also changing the policy, as we've described, right? Like very close to some of the Trump era policies, by the way, which is why he's catching some flack from the left. The ACLU came out against him. Human Rights Watch came out against him. They don't love these new asylum rules. Uh, So he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. But one thing that is unquestionably true is that local officials are incredibly frustrated. No matter what your political party is, you have both candidates in the Arizona Senate primary, Cinema and Gallego, criticizing Biden. You have the Democratic governor criticizing Biden, saying he's pr- basically unprepared. Uh, and we also caught this clip of this mayor from Laredo, um, Texas, who, you know, is basically giving it like he sees it and seems very frustrated by the reality on the ground. Let's go to that clip. And Laredo, frankly, does not have the resources to absorb the level of migrants that are being projected to cross over and then be transferred to us. We don't have the crossing as uh, other border cities, but we're going to have the transfers because we're a processing center. I have committed, uh, sorry, I have communicated this to our congressman, uh, Henry Cuellar, who's also talking to Secretary Mayorkas. So we need to have a structured plan for the transfers uh, to us because we can get overwhelmed and especially our hospitals. We're medically un- underserved. We have a, a, a deficit in the medical infrastructure and we saw that during the pandemic. So that's very concerning. And I'm treating this like a hurricane. So I'm asking for the resources to start now, like boarding up for a hurricane, you board up before the hurricane hits. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we have to we have to get any help we can in any part of the United States where they have room or shelters that we can uh, we can refer the migrants to. So the number that they're anticipating, um, which actually comes from the Biden administration, is about thirteen thousand crossings per day. Um, and down in Texas, Governor Abbott is saying that President Biden is laying down a welcome mat to the entire world. He has been making some pretty um, sweeping moves here. Um, he is 
unleashing a specially trained elite National Guard unit called the Texas Tactical Border Force, um, which he says he'll deploy to hotspots of um, migrants coming through. They've laid uh, miles of wire along the border. Also in Texas, there is a new semi-bipartisan House bill, which would put $100 million towards communities that are on the border um, to support detention centers, security, and economic development projects. There was going to be kind of like a vigilante style citizen force to enforce uh, immigration policies that ended up getting pulled from the bill. And even the bill's author flipped on whether or not that would be appropriate. Um, and then also at the same time, Mexico is is mobilizing law enforcement um, down on the Guatemalan border and on uh, big migration corridors. So we don't know exactly how many, but that suggests that Mexico is continuing to cooperate with the Biden administration. Monica, I'm very curious as to what you think happens here, because if you look at over the past few years, we've seen a pretty incredible increase in people mm-hmm. trying to cross the border. I, there's all this frustration on the ground. It seems like there's a lot of chaos. Biden himself acknowledged in a press conference that there was going to be chaos because of all of this. But I could see it going either way. I could actually see a decrease in people attempting to cross the border, in part because Title Eight is more restrictive in certain ways, in part because of these new Biden administration policies, but also because of the state level action where you've got all of this activity at the borders of often red states where they're taking matters into their own hands. And you, I could see, you know, net immigration and certainly attempts going down during this process. I think initially it might go up, but I agree with you that over time we might see a decrease in migration because the message that a lot of these states, for instance, Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis just uh, signed this very this sweeping anti-immigration law. I think the message that we're sending, some states are sending to a lot of these migrants is that they don't want them there. Yeah. So I think that's that's definitely part of the equation. But I also think it's important to consider the fact that a big factor in this influx of migration is actually this information. There are criminal networks that uh, actually leave off uh, selling lies to these migrants. And WhatsApp, these social social networks, are a very good tool to spread this information and to tell these migrants that the U.S. now with Biden has an open border policy and that once they come to the U.S., life is going to be easy and all their problems are going to go away, which obviously we know that's that's absolutely not the case. And these migrants are going to face a lot of hurdles and a a lot of obstacles. And it's going to be a a difficult road, not only getting to the U.S., but after they, they they get here after they, they're, they enter the country. But unfortunately, I think a lot of these migrants, they they just been lied to. And right. uh, they are in such a difficult situation that they're willing to do such a dangerous trip just because they want a better future. So as long as that's the case, unfortunately, I think quite a big number of, of migrants are going to keep showing up at the border. Yeah. And I think like, there's this political hot potato happening with migrants in this country right now. We've been talking about this forever since the DeSantis flight situation. But since then, Jared Polis got in the middle of this. Eric Adams is criticized this week for sending migrants up to Auckland County. So you've got blue and red state and city politicians trying to get rid of essentially migrants. It's a national embarrassment. 
And there was this part of the New York Times story that was fascinating to me, which is they had the following quote, able-bodied men are asking for bus money to reach Houston, Denver, and Orlando, where they said jobs await, end quote. So essentially people are coming across the border. They know they don't want to stay in El Paso. I don't think El Paso wants them to stay in El Paso. <laughs> Certainly the, the leaders of these states have made that clear. When people, in some cases disingenuously, try to move people around the country for political reasons or not, that gets criticized. Both polis, you know, polis pushed back, pulled back. DeSantis, you know, put the pedal down to the floor on it. But we don't have a national organized system to, um, you know, distribute people around the country to where people actually do need mm. folks to fill jobs. In part because we're not acknowledging the reality of what's happening right now. Like as we've covered before, we're using this broken asylum system to, you know, basically look the other way while people who often don't have credible asylum claims under our law stay in the country, right? Um, and so it's like this weird like loophole within the system, but we don't have a way to distribute them around the country. Often they're going where they feel like the asylum case environment is stronger than it otherwise mm -hmm. would be, or they're just accidentally winding up in certain places. Uh, but we're not investing enough in capacity in the court system. Like lost in this entire discussion, of how do we fix the immigration system is the fact that we have that five-year backlog that you're talking about in asylum cases. If we invested in more judges and more lawyers and more administrative officials to more expeditiously uh, decide immigration cases in this country and asylum cases, that would go a long way in improving the reality for everybody. The people with credible asylum cases, the people without a credible asylum cases, the people who are looking for some level of clarity, the people who want you know, border towns to be more organized. But there's just not a lot of debate about that. And I think uh, one of the things that Uriel Garcia, the reporter I talked to, mentioned is that all these migrants are showing up at El Paso, a lot of them, because they they, they get desperate, they come to the U.S. illegally without being processed, right? There are two ways you can um, you can talk to immigration officers at the border um, and just claim asylum, or you can come in illegally, and a lot of these migrants are choosing option two because they know it's taking a long time to actually get processed. And the problem with that is that the, the federal funds that cities like El Paso are receiving cannot be used to help immigrants who, who crossed illegally. It does just not, it's illegal to do that. So all this money is just not being allocated towards these people who also need help. That's one problem. And then the other problem is, uh, Ravi, you were mentioning the backlog, which is, is true. It's a five-year backlog, but there's also a backlog when it comes to just getting your employment authorization card. After you apply for asylum, you you get a employment authorization, but it takes up to nine months after you claim asylum to actually get that authorization. And this is something that a lot of migrants don't know. So how are you going to survive in this country, in any country, without being able to work for up to nine months or, mo or more in some cases? So that leads, obviously, to a lot of these migrants working without proper documentation. And that is just a vicious cycle. Without moving us too far off the mark here, I do think it's easy to say, oh, we should have more judges or invest more in, in the legal system. But I would note that this is a larger systemic issue beyond just the immigration system, that there's a national judge shortage. In fact, in New Jersey, in, in my hometown, you can't get divorced right now in like several counties in New Jersey because there's such a severe shortage of judges. So I think this is like a, a broader cultural conversation about why why is it that 
that migrants and American citizens alike can't access the court systems that they they pay to uphold. Well, it's usually politics, so like not to, to lead us too astray. Like at the federal level, the reason why you can't expand the judiciary is because expanding the judiciary means whoever is in power, especially whoever has the presidency and the Senate, in this case, Democrats, would get a huge advantage in the court system. So, you know, that 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 issue you're talking about, about the backlog of cases is severe at the federal level. And we all know, we've talked about this many times, why there's been no action at Congress uh, as it relates to immigration, including on the, the judiciary and the lawyers. Worth mentioning that there is there are people making proposals. So Sherrod Brown, the Democrat from Ohio, has joined with Cinema, uh, the Independent from Arizona, and Tom Tillis, the Republican from North Carolina, to call for extending Title 42. Uh, Republicans in the House also plan to vote on a border bill today that they, you know, basically view as a counter to Biden's measures. The bill would uh, put money into border security equipment and personnel, make it basically impossible for migrants to successfully seek asylum in the U.S. That's the Wall Street Journal's words, not mine. Uh, it, also, it would also uh, restore Trump era policies like resuming construction of the border wall, uh, reinstating the remain in Mexico policy, et cetera. So uh, there, there are sort of measures here. I would say as a Democrat, uh, I am not sure what the Democratic policy is right now. Um, I guess Biden, you know, being the president, like what he's laid down is essentially what he wants to do, most of which he's doing without congressional action. Uh, you know, the, the true solution here, in my opinion, has to be something resembling what Ted Kennedy and John McCain were trying to do years ago, which is couple increased uh, border enforcement with a reform to the system for people who are either here or who are people who we want to encourage to be here in a world of limited priority, uh, limited resources, right? Where we say, all right, if we're only going to let in a certain amount of people, who are those people going to be? And it should have some kind of logic related to what country they're coming from, what jobs they'd fill, and whether they've been the subject of political persecution. Right now, we just have chaos that Biden's even describing as chaos. Well, thank you so much, Monica, for coming on and um, sharing with us. And if you are a Spanish language speaker or if you know someone who is, listen to the podcast that Monica works on. Um, that's part of the branch network called Pulso y Pendulo. Is that okay? Is that close enough? Yeah, that's, the, that's right, Ricky. Pulso y Pendulo. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, Ricky, I've talked about on this podcast before, there's this thing called Khan Academy, which has been you know, viewed billions of times around the world. It's the most important educational tool. It's been ever, you know, it's been for a long time. We used to use it back in the schools that I was running, you know, early, you know, even before 2016. And Sal Khan, who's a really innovative you know, proprietor of Khan Academy, recently did a TED Talk and then has been kind of barnstorming the country talking about this new AI tool that they've been developing within Khan Academy. And Khan Academy essentially basically takes all the skills that, that students tend to need, uh, you know, math, reading, science, test prep, et cetera, and it has an exhaustive catalog of videos and exercises for students and in some cases teachers uh, that breaks down material, quizzes students on material, has an innovative way to track mastery, et cetera, and it's long been used by people around the world. And it has everything from basic arithmetic all the way up to very complicated physics, even quantum physics and mathematics at the college level. So it's an incredible tool. But now he he unveiled this 
this new version of it, which has been um, built on top of GPT-4. He had early access to GPT-4. He got it in August. And he built this tool, this AI tool on top of it that essentially is a tutoring program within Khan Academy. And this thing is crazy powerful, Ricky. Yeah, it's called Conmigo, and it's supposed to be a cross between a tutor and also a teaching teacher's assistant, so it could aid in the classroom as well. Um, and it's very Socratic. So the the language model is kind of refined for the educational setting. It's not, it's like a, almost like putting a funnel on what ChatGPT can do and, you know, mod- moderating it so that it's appropriate for a child and also so that it asks children things rather than just spitting out answers automatically, which I think was one of the major concerns about cheating and essay generation and stuff like that. Um, so he's saying that this is for guiding you through studying, not for cheating. Um, and I would say that there there are pros and cons in my mind. Ricky, what's really fascinating about this is that Khan off the bat admits that this is going to basically take the place of teaching assistants and tutors. I actually think it's going to take the place of more, but this is what he had to say. What if you could give every every student on the planet something that approximates or even kind of is a personal one-to-one tutor? And what if you could give every teacher on the planet something that approximates or essentially starts to become uh, a teaching assistant or even an army of teaching assistants? So what he's saying is, look, like, He's framing it in the positive, saying like, this is going to, it's not going to take the place of anybody. It's just going to provide what we all agree we need in society. And he actually began the lecture by talking about this data that we've long had. He starts with a study from 1984 by Benjamin Bloom that talks about one-to-one tutoring provides two standards of deviation of improvement for students, meaning it would turn the average student into an exceptional student. So 50th percentile student to a 95th percentile student. He's saying, look, like this is, we've tried for years. That study came in 1984. We've had studies ever since saying that the most important intervention you can make in the lives of kids academically is tutoring, but we don't have the resources to give everybody a tutor. AI is gonna give us that resource. And Ricky, this stuff is so powerful uh, across the board, he's and this is the earliest versions of this, like the crudest versions we'll see of this. Uh, he started with math, which is where you'd expect to be, be expected to be pretty good. And he talks about, like, hey, like people think this is just going to give kids the answer. It's not. It's actually going to mimic what great tutors do. Let's go to this clip. And here the student says, tell me the answer. Very entitled student. And <laughs> Conmigo says, no, let's work through the problem. What do you think is the next step? And then notice the student is actually distributing incorrectly here. And this is something a lot of people didn't think large language models could do, but we've worked tirelessly with the OpenAI researchers, and we've been doing a lot on our end, where it's doing several interesting things here. One, it noticed that the student made a mistake, but it didn't do kind of standard chat GPT, you made a mistake. It's saying, I see that you simplified the equation, but I'm curious how you got to that step. That's what a good, can you explain your thought process? Remember, we need to distribute the negative two to both the nine and the two M inside the parentheses. Let's try that step again. So this is what you would expect, not just an average tutor to do, but a really good tutor. They identified the mistake. They're actually explaining the the student to think about the reasoning. And it had a hunch that the mistake was that the student didn't distribute. So not only can it do this kind of guiding you through math situation, it can also be helpful in the reading front as well. Um, And one example that actually kind of creeped me out a little bit, I have to admit, is um, personifying a a literary character in one example, Great Gatsby. Talking about the student, uh, Sanvi at Khan World School, who she was doing a 
she was reading The Great Gatsby, and, and she was wondering, why does he keep looking at that green light? And then she remembered that she had access to Conmigo, and she could just talk to Jay Gatsby. And then, so she goes to Conmigo. We have all these literary characters you can talk to. And he's like, ah, splendid choice, choice, old sport. I am now Jay Gatsby, the enigmatic millionaire from the F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic. And then she said, you know, why do you keep staring at the green light? Ah, the green light, old sport. It's a symbol of my dreams and desires, you see. It's situated at the end of Daisy Buchanan's dock across the bay from my mansion. I gaze at it longingly. And, I mean, they go, and as I said earlier today, Sanvi ended up having all, and, and notice it's not just answering questions. I mean, that last sentence, now tell me, have you ever had a dream of de, or desire that seemed just out of reach? So the AI is actually driving the conversation and it's engaging. And Sanvi told me, and she was a ninth, she's a ninth grader, that she ended up having like a two hour conversation with Jay Gatsby <laughs> and, and then apologized for taking his time. She's like, oh, you're very, you're very busy, Mr. Gatsby. So that end part of that anecdote is where I'm like, I think that there need to be guardrails on how children interact with, um, with these non-human tutors and stuff. And we need to be very mindful about maintaining the human touch and collaborative work and like human interaction. So, you know, I don't know if two and a half hours talking to, to Gatsby is necessarily the, the best situation in a classroom. And so I would hope in the classroom setting, it, at the very least, we can refine where the, the time and place is for these sorts of tools. I think a lot of this has to do with the quality of the teaching that you have. In some cases, these tools, and they're going to get better and better and better. At a certain point, it won't just be words on the screen. It'll be something looking at you. And, and you start to couple this technology with metaverse technology. It could be something that appears real to you talking to you. It could be Gatsby himself. And apparently, they have this for Julius Caesar, Frederick Douglass. You could have conversations with them. Uh, apparently, they're also soon going to have inanimate objects that you can converse with, like the Mississippi River, like asking it, like, you know, why do you flow this way or that, you know, or whatever. So, <laughs> you know, people could have certain reactions to it. I think the you know, one thing I know about Khan is they're going to keep really good data about how both this improves student understanding, but also how it improves their buy-in for a lesson. And there's another part of this, this speech that he gave that really stood out to me, which is the most important question that educators get, and they don't often have an answer to it, which is, why am I learning this lesson in the first place? Uh, this is what their chat function had to say to that. Where the student asks the age-old question, why do I need to learn this? And it knows what's in the video. It says, well, what do you care about? And so, and it's very Socratic. So once again, it's very different than chat GPT. And so the student says, I want to be a professional athlete. Awesome. As a professional athlete, understanding the science of sizes can help you appreciate how the body works at a cellular level. For example, knowing how cells, proteins, and molecules interact make better choices about nutrition, hydration, and recovery. And the best part, in my opinion, are the emojis. Yeah, so I mean, this is great. Like you want, mm -hmm. like if I were giving feedback on a teacher and a student asked that question in class and the teacher's first reaction was, well, what do you care about? That's like a pretty good response to a student in that classroom because, you know, nine times out of 10, the teacher's going to immediately go, well, you should care because anatomy and physiology is all about like you and whether you get healthy, but like stopping and saying, well, tell me a little bit more. That's really fascinating. There's another part of this video that we won't go to where he talks about how they program the GPT to make it different than our experience with the regular GPT-4, essentially where they trained the con version of this, the conmigo to think before it speaks. So essentially, like they have a language to, to slow it down a little bit. And I sense that's what's at work when it asks a question like, well, what do you care about? So uh, 
they're they're trying to improve upon it. And I think as we're trying to figure out this technology, this GPT, I think a lot of people are wondering, well, what's the difference between this plugin, you know, this other program built on top of GPT versus GPT itself? And I think we're starting to figure this out. But I think the the holy grail, Ricky, of any tutoring and any instruction, the more complex instruction is going to be writing. And I think a lot of people would believe that writing instruction and tutoring would be the kind of last place that Khan would get to in some of these AI tutoring programs. But he claims that they're already making huge progress in the writing area. Let's go to this clip. For everyone, a lot of the narrative of ChatGPT is it's gonna write your stories for you. This is showing that it can write with you. So here, the, stu the student wants to write a horror story, and then it says, ooh, a horror story, how spine-tingling and thrilling. Let's dive into the world of eerie shadows and chilling mysteries. Notice, this is very different than the language you'll get from ChatGPT, even if it's using GPT-4, and it shows the importance of putting care into the, the art of how you get these AIs to behave. This is really an engaging co-writer, writing coach with the student. And so the student wrote the first sentence, uh, uh, first two, Beatrice was a misunderstood ghost. She wanted to make friends but kept scaring them by accident. And then the AI says, poor Beatrice, a lonely spirit yearning for companionship. One day she stumbled and then it says, now it's your turn, write the next two sentences and once again, the emojis. You can't, you can't get enough. So I think the short circuit, some of the concern about, about cheating and generating an entire essay up front, um, given that kids are only using this version, um, which I think there's there's still the concern about the regular chat GPT. And I think that the take-home essays and at-home essays that are not written by hand are probably going to be a thing of the past, as well as some sort of more rote homework assignments as well. Because if you can just look it up, it doesn't matter if this plugin exists. What matters is if you have access to the other one. But I think within the educational setting, certainly this is this is helpful. I think it can be helpful with homework in terms of actually learning the material. But it does require, as soon as kids are outside of the classroom, a, a bit of trust placed in their hands to actually use this tool specifically. But then again, I don't. I guess that's not all that different from Khan Academy's initial mission, which is just like if you if you care enough to use the supplemental material, it's here for you and and can help you learn and grow, which is obviously a great equalizer in terms of um, the quality of education that people have access to at their school. You know, my big question here is why the teachers unions aren't demanding what the Writers Guild that we talked about the other day is mm. demanding, which is that we pull AI from the classrooms. Now, I wouldn't want that. I actually think this is a really important tool that we let flourish. But if there was any threat to the teaching profession, to me, like just like the writers view AI as a threat to their profession, I'm I'm a little concerned, like a little confused as to why the teachers don't view this as a huge threat to them. Because you know what this I think stuff it is going to be? get better and better and better. Yeah. I think we have such a myopic focus right now on school closures and the pandemic. And I think that they're not looking at that separate issue at the moment because they've just been pummeled with bad press. But I, I imagine that in the near future, this is going to become an issue, particularly the more that that chatter around this specific tool comes to light. But then again, we do have an enormous teaching shortage and this could allow us to pay the teachers that we do have better wages and support them in being able to, like one person, individualize instruction um, mm -hmm. as much as possible for a larger number of students in a classroom, potentially. 
Well, that's where I think, that's where my mind goes to, and I've long been pitching this idea on this podcast, is that I think we need to think differently about what a teacher is in this era. So we, we largely create teachers who are, you are the third grade reading teacher, you're the eighth grade science teacher. And I think mm-hmm. we need to create more generalists. So almost the equivalent of like what your primary care physician is, like the kind of person who's your air traffic controller for the medical system, if the medical system were working properly, obviously, we all have like fraught relationships with, with the system right now. But assuming like you had a really involved primary care physician, they're, they're at their best when they give you a lot of time, they learn a lot about you, they stay with you for hopefully, you know, decades if, you know, if you're doing it right and they're doing it right. And they help get, find you the specialist, they help you find resources, they prescribe drugs. Uh, but we don't have, outside of pediatricians, we tend to not have a 25-year-old doctor and then a 26-year-old doctor. You know, it's like you don't change doctors every year. And I actually think that for teaching, we should consider something like that, where you have a coach, teacher coach, who you start with in first grade, and maybe you go to 12th grade, or maybe if it, we're still treating schools as elementary schools, you, you get a new one in sixth grade or something, right? And yes, they should have a general knowledge of where all these resources are, what kind of modules to assign. Um, they can help you, you know, go through certain obstacles as you're learning, but they're really there to help you navigate the system, help hold you accountable, help motivate you, help to understand you as a person, uh, and, you know, take care of all the things that, you know, slip through the cracks in our current educational system. And I think we're going to see that model more when these tools get better and better and better. Where like explaining how to add fractions with unlike denominators is less important as a teacher than understanding how to interact with a kid and understand what's going on in their lives. And I think in a younger grade that that makes sense. Certainly, I think it makes less sense as soon as you get into the high school level or potentially even the middle school level with more specialized things. But I do agree that if the bandwidth of specific teachers increases, then having that continuity is a positive overall and they can probably assist more students through more diverse levels of advancement. But I think once you get up into like the higher level schools or higher levels of instruction, like I don't really want my English teacher teaching me chemistry, but yeah. I don't know that that's but what I don't you're advocating you're, for. I don't think your English teacher is going to be teaching you anything anymore. And it, it, mm. it's part of what I'm thinking about where I think like, I think these tools are going to get better and better and better. Like take chemistry, for example, like inevitably there are videos online and tools online right now that teach chemistry better than all but the you know top percentile of chemistry teachers around the country. So explaining the concept and coming up with really good, you know, um, problem sets, et cetera, is not the the skill set of that teacher anymore. The skill set of that teacher is a little bit more soft skills, right? Being a really good motivator, being somebody who's you know checking in with kids, uh, somebody who's staying up on what the latest you know tools are, right? Like, so understanding, well, maybe Khan is really good for this, but, you know, Code Academy is really good for this. And being like a connoisseur of the different tools that are available to somebody like a primary care physician who, you know, may not know everything about gastroenterology, could, but could be like, well, I think this gastroenterologist is better for you than that gastroenterologist, which is essentially what they do. I think we need to be 
careful because we did have like a sort of version of an experiment in the pandemic of what happens when you let kids completely learn digitally and you isolate them and they lose social connection and social cohesion. And I think that there is a universe in which, you know, we could go down the road of saying, oh, it'll be much easier, much cheaper to not actually have the physical school buildings that we need to maintain. And they're already learning online. So let's just let them learn from home. And and that'll be that much simpler because we have AI now. And I think we do have a cautionary tale where there are certain elements of human connection and in-person interaction and collaboration and discussion and hallway socialization that in some world this AI could kind of take over and and usurp. And I I think we need to um, certainly take pause when we look at what happened over the course of the pandemic and making sure that we we parse out what elements of in-person traditional education are important to forming a, a healthy, happy human being who can collaborate with other people and not let this uh, or just let the idea of like making education as efficient as humanly possible blind us to some of the more important developmental issues at hand too. Yeah. And I think like, and and I'll, and we'll link in the show notes to the essay I wrote about high school. Like my vision for this is kids still show up to a building and actually gives them more time and more resources with either adults or their peers than they otherwise would. So, you know, in part using these tools, you free up more time and resources to give kids what they need in a perfect world. So like, you know, just because a teacher isn't like writing that lesson plan on chemistry doesn't mean they're not doing something else. Maybe they're helping a kid find a good after school job or help them navigate the college acceptance system or, you know, getting to the bottom of some thorny bullying situation that they otherwise wouldn't because they were so busy doing something else. So that's the vision. Uh, But Ricky, as we as we close out on this, a couple of things I just want to name. One is that this is under pilot and they plan to, it's hard to get access to this right now. They plan to dramatically accelerate access by summer and hopefully they want to get most people access by fall. Uh, all interactions on this uh, among students are recorded for access for teachers and parents. Um, and as part of that, they have like really aggressive, it seems, uh, cheating detection tools where they don't necessarily, it seems, say this person cheated, but they will send a message, for instance, to a teacher saying, well, you gave the student four hours to write this essay and they seem to copy paste something from the internet that only took them 30 seconds, <laughs> you know? So um, that's the kind of messaging that I think is going back and forth here. And there's a whole lot to talk about here, but I think bottom line, really powerful tool, even at its embryonic stage, like this is not even a year old. They only got access to GPT-4 in August. This stuff is gonna be explosive. It's gonna be very powerful. It's gonna upend the teaching profession. It may change the way a lot of schools function. Khan himself runs laboratory schools. He talked about one of his students in one of those earlier clips that we played. So this is powerful stuff. So Ricky, we were greeted with some news on home prices this week. So we've seen the largest fall this quarter in over a decade now in terms of home prices. In one in every three metro areas, there was a fall. Um, and this comes after the surge nationwide in in house prices as mortgage rates went down, as people were relocating during the pandemic. But now that things are cooling off and the mortgage rates are back up, we're seeing two 
um, kind of parallel stories unfolding in lower end housing. Actually, prices are still going up, whereas in less affordable markets, they're starting to tumble. Um, and then also geographically speaking, the American West is further behind. San Francisco had a 14.5% decline in the last year. Also up on the top of the list is San Jose and Boise, Idaho. Um, and Boise, Idaho, is, is, you know, kind of gives the the thought of some of the places like the, the more outback places that people were starting to move to during the pandemic away from major city areas into um, more diverse regions. And so I think basically the story that we see here is that the housing markets that really heated up because of the pandemic or in large part due to the pandemic are now the ones that are cooling down. Um, and then obviously the largest factor here in my view is just mortgage rates going up. Um, the average American family for a single family house um, payments went up 33% year over year. And that's why at the same time supply is limited. So we've got a lot of factors going on here, but I think that pandemic boom is starting to kind of fizzle. Yeah, what's fascinating, you were talking about like the small market or the lower cost markets are the ones that are seeing the largest increases. So Kingsport, Tennessee was the metro area with the strongest increase in the first quarter. It was up 18.9% from a year earlier. And Wall Street Journal and Realtor.com have a separate metric that identifies metro areas where basically if you buy now, they anticipate your value will go up the most. And the top 20 markets all have an average population below 400,000. So basically small towns and a lot of Midwest Western towns seem to be having some of the best results here. Uh, the Wall Street Journal also had a report, though, that uh, showed that something else is going on in the mortgage in the in the market for housing related to mortgage prices. So one is you know mortgage costs are going up as you talked about. The other consequence of that is there are a lot of people who are quote unquote trapped, as the Wall Street Journal put it, in their low mortgage houses. They may want to move, they may want to buy new houses, but they have really good mortgage rates that they don't want to give up. So even if prices drop, we talked about this before, even if the core price of a house drops, the cost of the good, when you account for interest rate, means that it's more expensive. So you're going to stay in your house as long as you possibly can. And so Wall Street Journal basically looked at this and said, you know, one of the reasons why the interest rate hikes from the Fed aren't going to have their intended effect, at least as, or they're not going to be as powerful as people anticipate they're going to be, is because some of these people are immovable right now when the mortgage rates are sometimes double, sometimes mm -hmm. more than double what people pay for them in the first place. Nobody's going to leave that. You know, Absolutely. like if I had a if I had a 2%, 2.5% mortgage rate, I wouldn't leave that anytime soon. Yeah, and that that could be contributing to the fact that 21% of listings are down 21% year over year at the moment. And you compare interest rates that were in in the threes and sometimes even the twos versus the average right now is 6.39%, which when you really like boil it down, it's it's incredible even though that sounds like a teeny tiny little increase from like a couple percentage points. Like it's it's a lot of money over the span of a 30-year mortgage. And so despite the fact that people might be going through different life chapters or getting better jobs and wanting to upgrade or their family's growing or they want to move job opportunities and sell their house or even divorces and deaths, people feel trapped in the houses that they're in because you know they're building equity with m a much lower interest rate, um, and which is why they're dubbing this the golden handcuffs, which is kind of a, <laughs> a clever term from the journal. Um, but this is completely unlike other market downturns. This is a very novel phenomenon. And I think it just comes from the fact that we artificially deflated and then reinflated the interest rates on housing. And housing is one of the most sensitive uh, 
uh, I guess, facets of the economy to mortgage or rate hikes and decreases in terms of what the Fed is doing. Yeah, and it's important to underscore what we talked about at the beginning, which is like, yes, there's like a quote unquote historic drop uh, in certain places. That's only a third of places in the country, though, where we're seeing yeah. price drops at a time when uh, mortgage rates are increasing so much. So this is kind of an obstinate issue, and it makes you wonder whether the Fed or the federal government writ large could be a little bit more tailored. Like we've already talked about the problem we have generally with how the Fed um, works interest rates and how arbitrary it could be for average people trying to enter the housing market. If you entered it three years ago, you're at like near zero interest rates. You enter it today, it's above 6%, right? And people shouldn't be subject to the whims of the market that way induced by the government, right? It's one thing mm -hmm. if the market is the market, but the government shouldn't be tinkering with it, with it in a way that creates winners and losers that way. But why can't they just they they come up with a policy that says if you, if it's if you're either a first time home buyer or potentially if it's your primary residence, we're going to keep interest rates low, uh, so that we can pull people out who have one primary residence and are buying another primary residence. We can incentivize them to sell if they want to sell, which you know can help everybody else trying to buy that next house, right? Because like essentially, some of these people are moving from a a less expensive house to a more expensive house. If they move from the less expensive house to the more expensive house, it frees up more inventory on the lower side for people who are looking to get st starter homes. But if you're, you know, in a starter home with a 2.5% mortgage or a 1% mortgage, and um, you may can, you may be able to afford a million dollar home, but you don't want to lose that mortgage, then you're depriving everybody else of that low cost housing. So I'm wondering whether the government could be more precise here and say, all right, we're gonna open up low cost mortgages for people who are not speculative. You know, it's not your fifth home. Yeah. It's not your Airbnb. You're not a private equity firm. We're just going to do it for people where it's their primary residence or their first home. Yeah. I mean, and not to mention the fact that you're like screwing people based on just the age or the year that they happen to be born. If they're graduating into life chapters where homeownership um, would be more common and they have a completely different reality than someone who's just a couple of years older or younger than them. That That's totally arbitrary. So I agree. I mean, I, I also think this just gets to my larger, more anarchist side where I don't really think that there should be shadowy figures deciding whether to heat up or cool down our economy in some, in some room and then no, just I'm announcing it. But, um, but certainly this is considering how sensitive the housing market is to these tweaks. I, I would agree that if there was a first place to start rolling back that interventionalist economic policy, it would be in um, trying to neutralize some of the impacts on the the housing the housing world, especially for young people, because it's just it's so arbitrary. And I feel very fortunate to to have ended up in the market when I did. But you know, that's also if I were a couple of years older or younger, like it could be a totally different situation. And yeah. a lot of my peers are the ladder's been pulled up before they even really had a chance, which is um, super arbitrary and super frustrating, and can have lifelong economic ramifications for people. Yeah, the real winners in this market are people around my age, the older millennials, who tend to, on average, have entered the market at the historic low interest rates. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's not true for everybody, but those people, on average, have done better than everybody else. The the winners, though, generally speaking, so I was looking at, like, in this environment, who's winning right now? Obviously, any cash purchaser is going to be doing really well right now because if you even see a slight cool down in the price, even though it's not as aggressive as it should be, the, the slight the home decrease. Like if you're in a, a cash buyer and that third that's going down, good for you. Um, second are people who love their current homes. So if you love your current home and you have no intention to leave, you know, and you, you 
probably have a really good mortgage right now. Um, two thirds of people with mortgages have a rate below 4%. Whereas if you were to go on the market today, you'd be above 6%. Uh, builders are, are benefited in this environment because what's happening when people don't sell? Well, there's a demand for new construction. And then the real big winners are the remodeling companies who really suffered during COVID. But for people who have all this equity built up in their homes, but don't want to leave right now because they don't want to give up their mortgage rate, well, they're going to come up with creative ways to make their house as cool as possible. So these remodeling companies are starting to see some data that they're in high demand right now too. And actually some of them did really well during COVID too, because a lot of people were stuck in their homes um, and were making improvements during COVID too. You see, That's why you saw like prices of lumber and certain things going up pretty dramatically during that period of time. So all of that being said, listeners, if you're one of those winners, good for you. If you're more complicated, uh, you know, you're in, in my boat too. I just bought over the past year and it's, it's frustrating, but like a lot of people, the last time we covered this said, well, people can refinance, et cetera. Well, you can only refinance if the, if the rate goes down anytime mm -hmm. soon, if the rate goes down, you know, if it takes five to 10 years to get back to where it was, it may never get back to where it was, by the way, then like, you know, some of these people are on 30 year mortgages. That's the third of the life of the mortgage. So uh, it's unclear whether people are going to recoup any of these costs that they're paying right now. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, we will be back here on Tuesday. And also next week, I'll be recording an episode with Andrew Yang. So if you have any questions for him, maybe we'll play your voicemail um, while we're talking. The voicemail number is 321 200 0570. And we will see you next week. Bye.